So, retrospectors, what historical events are we ticking off on this week's run of Today in History? Well, Monday is the anniversary of the day Roger first publishes famous thesaurus. Then on Tuesday, we say happy birthday, Mr. Potato Head. On Wednesday, the extraordinary stories of the child soldiers who fought in the American Civil War. On Thursday, how King James changed the word of God. And on Friday, what did spam emails look like in 1978? We discuss this and more on Today in History with the retrospectors. Ten minutes every weekday, wherever you get your podcasts. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, Man fans. Ollie Man here with your monthly audio magazine of trends, sex advice, and amazing real life stories. Here's what's coming up. There's something about the attraction of putting things back together, literally. Could be any one of us fit, healthy, walking down a road, and the moment you, know, you get hit by a bus, hit by whatever, you're transformed into something completely different. Firefights, amputations, and anxiety. Another day in the office for the surgeons on the front line. Plus... It will feel absolutely bloody stupid. You'll feel like a nincompoop. Alex Fox has advice for couples with wildly different libidos. And Ollie Peart locks me in a room with some floppy disks and party poppers. It's all to come on this edition of The Modern Man. But first, your letters, and thank you for all of your responses to my interview with Sebastian last month. Uh, Katie on Twitter, at The Modern Man, says, Every woman I know will tell you that erectile dysfunction on the first night with a new partner is super common in our male partners. I'd hate to think that any men will listen to Seb's story and think they necessarily need medical help. Uh, a fair point, although this anonymous email came in as well. Uh, it says, Ollie, well done on addressing porn-related dysfunction. Your faith is misplaced, though, that the medical profession would be up to speed. My friend in med school says he's often seeing patients with problems triggered by streaming porn, and his professors, who are older and didn't grow up with endless porn, have not got a clue. It'll be decades before science, let alone medical professionals, are equipped to deal with this. <laughs> and finally, on that Greg email as well. He says, Ollie, I'm 21 and underwent a similar experience to Sebastian. I diagnosed myself with PIED, I cut out porn and eventually was able to lead a normal sex life with a loving partner. Thank you for getting Seb's story out there and having the courage to tackle an issue we don't talk about enough. Had your episode have come out a year ago, I'd have known I was not alone. Uh, Greg, thank you for that. And thank you for all your thoughts on the show. You can always click feedback on our website. And, uh, you know, if we're your favourite show, do tell people on social media as well. <laughs> Be my guest. We are at The Modern Man on Twitter, uh, or I'm at facebook.com slash Man. And something you'll find on my Facebook page at the moment, actually, is a documentary I've just made for Radio 4. So if after listening to this episode, uh, you crave more man in your ears, 
before November the 1st rolls around, well, there is more. It's an hour-long show about the history of voicemail, told through some really astonishing archive, everything from 1940s vinyl voice letters, which were literally posted to people, uh, right the way through to the heartbreaking messages left by victims of 9-11. The programme is called Please Leave a Message After the Tone. It is on BBC Sounds, but if you're finding it a bit tricky to locate, uh, I have pinned the link to the top of my Twitter profile, at Ollie Man. So you can listen there. Uh, right, just a reminder before we get going that this show is an independent production. We are funded purely by sponsorship and by your donations. If you have the ability, please thank us by buying us a beer, uh, preferably once a month. All our secure payment details are on our website, modernmanwith2ends.co.uk. Just click beer money and in this month's edition you will learn how to do bossy massage you'll learn how urban warfare has changed the nhs and you'll learn what supratentorial means let's go time for the zeitgeist your trends tested with the one-man podcasting equivalent of a surrender act it's ollie pitt what you brought me to Exmouth Market this month, mm-hmm. near Farringdon in London, on the Thameslink, so super convenient for me. That's not why I picked it. Remind us why we're here. We're here because I was challenged last month to build an escape room. That's right. Man Fan Mir from Berlin wrote into the show mm-hmm. to... Well, she asked, firstly, what were the best escape rooms you could recommend in the UK? But as if to up the ante, we've asked you to design an escape room, which I and Alex Fox are shortly about to test out. That's right. How's it been? I completely accidentally stumbled across somebody called Sarah Dodd. Mm -hmm. Sarah Dodd is a bit of an escape room aficionado in that she has completed the most escape rooms in the world. She's done 1,405 escape rooms. How many? 1,405. How many? (laughs) 1,405. She's Fuck. done. She's completed. That's like five years' worth of daily escape rooms, it's isn't it? It's really impressive. She actually showed me a schedule of one of her holidays, which includes, uh, like, she builds in escape rooms into her holiday with her partner, and she's done, like, between eight and 12 on a day, and she'll do that every day for five days. It's such an astonishing number, because, I don't know, for me, I, I probably first he- heard the phrase escape room about two years ago. Mm-hmm. The one everyone was talking about was the recreation of the Crystal Maze. I don't even know if that counts as a proper escape room. I thought there were, like, a dozen so how many are there? Well, look, the first one opened in 2014, which is why you only heard about it relatively recently. On and, the pulse. And now in the UK, there are 1,500. That's in the UK alone. Wow. And 1,100 of those are unique games. But globally, there are over 20,000. So even though uh, Sarah's done 1,405, she's still got a fair way to go to complete all of them in the world. And what do all those places have in common? What is an escape room? There's a specific goal that you have to reach when you go in there. And that might be to unlock a room like a whodunit thing Mm. by solving multiple puzzles that are in that room you walk in and everything in there leads you to an ultimate answer that means you complete it and it's timed they're all time limited and are they all one room that's not a stupid question no no but you could you could go into a room complete a particular puzzle and that would unlock another room yeah and so on and so forth people don't just do it for fun though there's like there's a world championships in this done by red bull i think right so this is this is competitive escape rooming so is that a little bit like what's it called where gamers go and play video games in arenas e-sports. and stuff esports yeah yeah it's kind of a bit like that but it's it, it's called esports but you watch people playing it or you can watch them how like online it well it's actually 
this is a bit of a bit more of a conversation, but they they've hit one or two snags with that because actually to watch it's quite difficult. If you watch a game of chess, yeah. you can kind of go, "Oh, I can kind of figure out what they're going to do next. I wonder if he's going to do that." But with seeing someone trying to complete a puzzle in an escape room, mm. you can't because you don't know what the puzzle is. Okay, so are you now saying that we've now set you a task which is to devise a game which is in itself more complicated to explain than chess? <laughs> Because we only have a limited amount of time on this show. Yeah, so yes. One of the ones I went to was called Ori Jeans, which was by ClueQuest, a company called ClueQuest. They got a bunch. And that's considered one of the best in London. Okay, so to answer Mia's question, that's the one she should head to That's the one she should head to. Ori Jeans. Ori Jeans. O-R-I. Jeans, as in... Genetics. Not, genetics, yeah. Was it like lab themed? I don't want to give too much away. This is this yeah, is like I'm the literally giving away a word, which I well, guess. No, but this is another thing that's really fascinating about the 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 escape room community. You, you will not if you go on YouTube or anything like that, and you try and Google like you know, like you get walkthroughs of games and stuff. Yes, you will not get that with escape rooms because right. you've ruined it. Yeah. You've ruined someone's entire business because if you go and in, night and out. Do, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So there's no no spoilers. So I'm I'm going to be really careful about what I say. Okay, but yes, but it has a bit of a lab thing. I, I seem to infer from the fact they're called escape rooms, and it's not always literally about escaping, that mm-hmm. it's partly about escaping your humdrum life for an evening, isn't it? Let's, yeah. let's escape into this <laughs> yeah. themed yeah. activity. Yeah, these places just create their own little world, their own little universe, and you just get completely absorbed in it, much in the same way as you would with a computer game. And that's exactly what I've tried to do here. I have tried to build my own little world for you. Okay, so we've been joined by. Alex Fox. Alex, are you a fan of escape rooms? Have you done one before? I've done quite a few, but never a homemade one. And I'm not convinced that Ollie P isn't just trying to kidnap us. Ollie, any tips before we begin? Look around. If stuff like moves, like have a little feel around, look around the whole room. But the number one tip is when you walk in, there is a computer there. Play that video before you do anything else. How long should this take? I've no idea. It hasn't been tested. What do you mean you've no idea? You designed it. And off we go. Oh my God, what is going to lurk within? And it's me, Ollie Pitt, aka the Zeitgeist. Well, like, we already got that bit right. Don't, because I'm Ollie Pitt for the future. You're currently in the room with my past self, as you can tell. Two hours in the future, it's carnage. In roughly an hour's time, the central podcast system of the world and the universe suffers a catastrophic cyber attack. As a result, podcasts aren't reaching listeners, and society, as we know, is unravelling at the scenes. So, the world needs you. Yes, you, Alex and Ollie. Your mission is to stop this cyber attack before it obliterates the podcasting network. You'll have to figure out who is behind the attack and stop them before they get a chance to launch it. You'll see around the room loads of old-school tech and bits and bobs that you'll have to use to figure it out. Everything you need is here. You haven't got long. The attack launches in one hour's time. Good luck and pod speed. Okay, so Alex has found some Polaroids. Four Polaroids. That, they're, okay, oh, they're of this room, Ollie. I yes, thought they had to fit together. So one is this... Wow, Ollie spent at least four pounds on Polaroids. Three, six, seven. Yeah, this is fun. <laughs> Hello? Hi, it's Ollie. Uh, I can't get to my phone right now. Just leave me a message. Bye. That sounds like Morse code. And we have... We found this Morse code thing. This is going to tell us yeah. a number, I think. So, one, two, three, four, five. I think it's one seven five. Can we see what's inside these party because there might be something hidden in there. If Ollie's managed to conceal a clue inside a party popper, then I am impressed. <laughs> oh look, it's got a number on the back. Yes. That's okay. That's, that's really quite cool. Fun. Yeah. Okay. Just... <laughs> oh Christ! That is set fire to my hand. <laughs> How did you know to give me that one? <laughs> Jesus. 
Oh, oh, that was it. That was it. Is that it? Yeah, that look, that goes there. Oh, yes, you got it. Okay. Duck oh, Island. Duck Island. <laughs> so try the password, Duck Island. Duck Island. Okay, we're in, we're in. Oh, my God, old computers were so excitable. We're in Word 2000, <laughs> truly the future. Alex and Ollie, I didn't have the heart to tell you face to face, but it was me all along. Sorry, just let me know and I won't shut down the podcast network. Ollie, don't shut down the podcast network. Yay! Right, are we done? You done? Okay, Yay! good. <laughs> and you just scraped it with how much left? 43 seconds left. Okay, so we've just come out the other side of Ollie's escape room. I mean, that was genuinely, that was well done. You have succeeded at this challenge, right? That was better than some professional escape rooms that I've done. No way! It was superb, yes. yeah. Yes. I've done go. a couple of dodgy ones. There was one that was supposed to be sex-themed, and it started off well, but then it took a really dark turn where oh. you were required to watch some revenge porn Jesus. as part of the code. Yeah, it was It was really bad taste. Okay, so Ollie, what did we get right, and what were you watching us doing and thinking, oh, I, they, either I fucked up or they fucked up well i fucked up at the start because i got my phone number wrong yes uh, the, the, <laughs> the idea was that you, you you when you walk in you get a couple of quick wins this is something i learned from sarah you want a couple of quick wins so you buy into the game right and you did that early on so you had some envelopes which you noticed were really easily scattered about and that's yes. where you found the phone number they're really easy to spot yeah and then i felt like intelligent because i'm bad at this kind of thing you felt smart right i felt well i felt like oh okay i can do this yeah yeah all part of it you've got the phone number you were right to do that I got the phone number wrong. That was my mistake. <laughs> Sorry. And then you, we called some bloke and had to apologise. I don't even know. What, he, he did not sound happy. I liked the use of ancient technologies. I thought that yeah. was quite fun. I was kind of surprised that we did get all the clues in the right order because sometimes in escape rooms there are red herrings and there are things that are designed to fool you or you think you've got a code to unlock one problem and then you find that actually it's for something later down the line and you can get really stuck on one issue. The thing that I struggled with, but it's probably just the kind of person I am, like I'm not a gamer, for example, I'm not into fantasy fiction, for example, was the theme. So, like, for me, the idea of... I, I just don't know what it was, really. Something about the world coming to an end. And, yeah. Well, I just, like, immediately my brain's just like, oh, fucking hell. Whereas, actually, the, the game, the actual game of finding the clues and stuff, I was, I was quite happy that there wasn't a strong theme, whereas I think some people would like to... No, I think some, a, a lot of them have quite a, like, a loose theme that sort of tie throughout, but it, it is the solving of the individual puzzles that sort of make it. So the ones that I went to, there was a theme there, but it wasn't the main part of it. The main part was solving the puzzles. So did you nick any ideas from your research? Yeah, loads. I don't want to ruin the games themselves, but simple things like piecing together jigsaw pieces, so the number was sort of jigsaw pieces, and hiding things, and colour-coded stuff, that kind of thing. So it's those little devices that I nicked. Some of the puzzles I put together, so the thing that you had to solve there where you put the, uh, the wires into the box, that was all my doing. Came up with that. That was good. Pulled that right out my ass. The party poppers. I was going to hope you didn't pull them out of your ass. <laughs> you did nearly set fire to my hand, but yeah. it was, that one was quite bits. explosive. How I, did you insert the number into the party popper? Just, you know, life hack. You have complete disregard for your own personal safety. Uh-huh. And you open them up and right. then you write the numbers on the bottom. Probably best that we say that we do not advise listeners to try that themselves at home. No, but it I'm is fun. Definitely doing it at home. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would say the way we played the game was different, but actually I would say there were there were moments where it was a strength of mine to be taking a bit of a back seat 
Whereas you, Alex, were very, very honest. <laughs> no, hang on. That's a, you can't say that. A strength of mine to take a back seat. So, yeah. No, come on, Ollie. What was your strength? I'm saying there were a few times that I think having a more relaxed attitude to it was helpful. And there are other times where being very in the zone was... Actually, I mean, we talk a lot about role play in another context, Alex. But I just wonder if sometimes being someone who gets really into imaginative play is useful in this scenario because you were like believing it weren't you I think we were quite a good match as a team because you're right sometimes staying calm and keeping a clear head allows you to see things for how they should be whereas although I enjoy getting really hyper and I fully buy into the scenario although that makes it enjoyable for me it sometimes means that I miss the obvious because I'm too excited and I feel like now would be a good time to come out and say (laughs) that whilst we were playing Sarah was in the room with us yep Sarah, world-class expert at solving. Well, she solved rooms. the most in the world than anybody yeah. else. Yeah, I, I'm presuming that one of the challenges she solved this month is helping you succeed at this. Well, I, without <laughs> Sarah, without Sarah, that experience would have been less than half as good. Okay, yeah, it's very generous of you. <laughs> and as part of your research, you managed to get a promo code for our listeners as well, right? Yeah, if you head to doStuffEscapeGames.com. Yeah. And when you book, enter in the promo code M-A-Triple-N, because we're being all cryptic, then you get 30% off one of the games there. Alex, thank you for that. Uh, I will see you later for some foxholing. Before we go, though, Ollie, uh, we need to give you your challenge for next month. Are you excited? Yes. I mean, I'd say exhausted. How many days have you been here preparing this room? Like 48 hours. Okay. It is from Manfan Alicia, who says, uh, Yesterday, my mum saw a news report about a UK company using insects as opposed to mammal meat, fish meat, or bird meat, as the primary protein in pet food. Right. So, I would like (laughs) Ollie to investigate the trend for insect pet food. Now, this genuinely is a thing because it's it's the eco-choice. Right, yeah. There is also a, a trend for humans eating insects, and so... We thought it would be... I'm putting myself on the line here as well. You bet me. The challenge is for you to cook for me a three-course insect-based meal. What? Apparently it's a thing. There are cocktail bars doing insect cocktails. It's a thing. It's not a trend. No, it is a trend. Right. I picked up a copy of Time Out last week and it was like the 10 best places to eat insects in London. It's It's genuinely a thing. Sounds disgusting. Do you accept... I'll cook you dinner, yeah. Yeah, no, but you're going to have to test some on the way. Is that okay? You are a pescatarian, you're not a vegetarian. Uh, you can eat it first and then tell me if it tastes good. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure we'll both enjoy that. No, but the challenge is to cook the meal. I mean, every good chef tastes their ingredients. That's a well-known... Well, whilst they're going along, I, I'll just taste bits of it, like the tomatoes and the nice bits. In a moment, you will hear from uh, not one, but two world-class trauma surgeons. But first, it's our record of the month. It's by Self-Esteem. The track is called In Time. And it's out now. Sing along, it's okay, you'll be fine. Just step right, left, baby, in time. Just step right, left, baby, in time. Thriver sponsored this episode of The Modern Man. Hi, uh, I'm Hamish, I'm the co founder and CEO of Thriver.co. 
Thriver is a finger prick blood test that you can do from home that helps you understand what you can't see is going on inside your body. Hamish started Thriver in 2016. I walked into a an Indian restaurant with a friend who was having a curry with no naan bread and was drinking a pint of cider and asked him why he looked so good and it turned out he was on the paleo diet and it unlocked a curiosity about how much control we have over our health. And for a lot of people they'll be a bit squeamish about doing an at-home blood test, I was. Well we work really hard on guiding people through that experience at home so there are very straightforward instructions which most do read, believe it or not, we've done the research. There's still a bit of a novelty to a home test but do you think medical stuff like that in your own home is going to become increasingly common it will just be the default way you send off a sample i do yeah and i think that you know the real shift that you're seeing is if you like a decentralization of health we've got an amazing healthcare system to fix you when you're sick what we don't have are lots of products and services that are designed to help people get on the front foot with their health so when i look at those trends it just feels like it's inevitable that we're going to see a lot more of that Get on the front foot with your health with £30 off your first Thriver home kit. Just visit Thriver.co and use the code MAN30. That's the word M-A-N-N and the numbers 3-0. Now, everyone knows someone who's been rushed into hospital, perhaps because of a car accident, perhaps due to a nasty fall or even as the result of a drunken Friday night. What you might not know is that behind the scenes in our NHS, there's been a revolution in the way trauma patients are treated, with techniques derived from the military. Shahan Hetirachi is a trauma surgeon at St Mary's in Paddington, and Manfan Al Philp does the same job, uh, in his case for a hospital group in Pittsburgh. I met both men and started by asking Shahan how he ended up working in this intense adrenalised branch of medicine. I'd spent time in a gap year with the military and then I kind of thought, well, you know, I'm interested in kind of, you know, trauma because that's a really interesting concept. You know, as someone who's, could be any one of us, fit, healthy, walking down a road and the moment, you know, you get hit by a bus, hit by whatever, you're transformed into something completely different. You know, a person who's got injuries that have to be fixed and have to be dealt with so that you can get back to being a normal person. So something about the way trauma could affect anyone and it's a kind of equal opportunities injury yeah like any age you know and there's something about the attraction of putting things back together literally so i as a med student spent six weeks in a level one trauma center in canada where um i saw lots of different types of trauma the thing that really made me go that's what i want to do is a guy come in having, having been attacked by a machete had machete injuries to his arms and had to have his bones his nerves his tendons skin all rebuilt from this long operation and at the end of it he had a hand that functioned having had a hand that didn't function and i thought god you know that's what i want to do and for a period of your training you were working with the army too yes i've always been uh, a military reservist and that's something i feel really um proud of when i was at school i was actually just thinking about joining the army full full stop as an infantry soldier but i was obsessed by mash and obsessed by sort of Hawkeye, and I kind of thought, that's just like the coolest thing in the world, what he's doing, you know, working in that environment, I'd love to do something like that. And in many ways, you know, working with a military medical team in the middle of uh, combat operations was almost the absolute um, highlight of my professional life in that, you know, it brought together everything. And it's rare that you get such concentration or such 
expertise in one hospital that is just dealing with one injury pattern which is trauma and the thing I found really amazing about that was just how effective it could be if you get the right people in the right place where were you posted to in in Afghanistan this was I think that's where you really saw the most incredible outcomes in some of the most challenging casualties we've seen and the extra dimension about military medicine I guess is your own personal safety which isn't something you have to think about too much here did you worry when you were in Afghanistan so I was the hospitals it was in the middle of a military base that was the size of Reading so you know I was I was most worried about twisting my ankle going running close to anything else having said that colleagues of mine were on the you know the helicopter which flew out and that had risk attached to it I finished medical school uh, and then did my residency and then did my trauma and critical care fellowship. Uh, and then the military reminded me that I owed them something. <laughs> so that was in 2002 and into 2003. And that's when the, the conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan started. I mean, that was obviously bubbling up on your TV set from 2001 mm-hmm. onwards. Did you think at that point, oh, Christ, you know, here I am <laughs> having taken a military scholarship not necessarily thinking I'd see active duty. Yeah, because, yeah, I mean, if you look at the history of the military, they're not at war far more than they are at war. You know, I figured I'd, you know, spend some weekends in Germany and maybe get stationed at some nice beach place, look at Hawaii or something. Uh, I never thought I was going to spend that much time actually in combat areas. So the first time I went, uh, I went as part of a forward surgical team. Um, which is a small group of people. It's meant to be able to function out of backpacks um, and provide high-level surgical procedures, but nowhere near a hospital, so far forward. The idea being war is a lot different now than it used to be. You know, It's not like World War II and you see the movies with the trenches and the tanks moving and all that sort of thing. Now it's all over in the middle of the city and it's downtown it's urban warfare and all these sort of things so in the same way that the combat people have to become light and adjustable the medical part needed to do that as well so one of the things that i did uh, in conjunction with the army was what they call dust off which is uh if you've ever seen the tv show mash you know when it starts there's these helicopters that come in and all the medical people run out uh and have been kind of on both sides of that have been the the people running out to meet the helicopters, uh, but also did some work in the helicopters, which was kind of eye-opening for me. I mean, middle-class guy, never thought there was, never anticipated being somewhere where you might get shot at. But some of that becomes weirdly regular. So when you're at these bases, you know, you'll be saying, oh, it's about five o'clock, the chow hall's opening up, you guys want to go, you know, grab a burger or something, and then the alarm goes off, which means grab your armor and run to the bunker because there's been a rocket attack somewhere. And the first time you're like, crap, I'm going to get rocketed. It's not how we wanted to die. And then by, you know, the fifth time you're like, crap, the chow hall is going to be closed by the time this all blows over. (laughs) So we also spent a lot of time working with the local nationals because um, in many of the places, particularly in Afghanistan, 
our more developed hospital resources were better than the vast majority of the things that they had access to. So when the Afghan army members were injured, we would often treat them or their families when they were injured you know, near the base and sometimes even the other combatants, which I didn't really understand initially. I sort of thought, this, you know, this is one of the guys on the other side. Why are we trying to fix them? And on some level, you think, I don't know where to put this sort of ethically, but it seems like the right thing to do. But then I, what I sort of realized when the first time um, one of the guards had said, well, when do you think they'll be able to talk? I'm like, I got it. Mm. We're, not, we're not doing this because this person has a family. We're doing this because this person has information. I'm not sure you can prepare for it. I, I think the, the reason that people can function like that is that your brain adjusts. So you're getting sent out somewhere far forward, right? And uh, you have a little bit of notice, hopefully. And that last night before you go, you, you go out with your family, some nice steak place. And then your first flight's over to Germany somewhere. And you stay at a, it's an airbase and it's a, you know, it's a hotel looking thing. And you stay in there and then you get in a smaller plane and you fly somewhere. And now you're at another base, which is like a not very nice hotel. Uh, and then another plane and you're at some place where there's nothing at all. Mm. And the first night that you sleep in a tent, which you put up, you're sort of like, I really enjoyed that steak. And it seems so weird and foreign and, you know, there's no bathroom. So you get up, you schlep over to the, you know, sort of Porta John kind of thing. Uh, but then by the next day, that's just how it is. And then on the reverse, you come back and I can remember landing. My family lives in East Tennessee, which is really hilly and uh, a lot of greenery and trees and rivers. And we're flying over it and I'm used to being in the desert. Hmm. And you look at this, and you're like, wow, it's beautiful. But two days later, it's just normal. So I always think being a surgeon is very Jekyll and Hyde and that there's a... I mean, it's very interesting, actually. So when you're operating on somebody, you know, you if it's... A trauma situation is slightly different because you, you don't know the person, okay? Because they've probably come in and they've all been anaesthetised, so you can't talk to them. But if it's not a person who's, you know, in that scenario, you know, you, you talk to them, you know who they are and you have an emotional relationship with them and that's important, I think, to make sure that there's trust between you and them understanding, empathy, you know, all the things that we'd want from someone who's, you know, trying to make us better. Now, when you actually have to do an operation, and I find this in my head, I'm almost like you flick a switch, you know, the patient is put to sleep, they lose consciousness, and now almost not a human being, because all the things that made them human are taken away, you know, there's a breathing machine for them, there's something monitoring their blood pressure, you know, they can't talk, they can't speak, they can't interact. And actually, as a surgeon, I find sometimes that's quite useful because now they are almost reduced to a clinical problem, which is a complex mixture of physical things and intellectual things for me to solve so I can make them better. And sometimes it does almost help to forget in your own head that this is a person. Mm. This is now reduced to a series of problems for you to solve and fix. We had a, um, an example in Afghanistan where we had a, a mass casualty, so a bunch of injured people at once, and it drains your blood bank pretty quickly. And so the guy from the blood bank comes over and is like, we're getting this stuff as fast as we can because you, you have living donors come in. You do it in a way that you, you can't really do it uh, generally, which is they call out over the overhead thing, you know, look at your dog tag. If it says, A, we need you to come donate blood. Uh, and so you have this walking donor pool. 
but it takes a, a bit of time still mm. to get that done and do at least a quick screen on it for uh, safety. Uh, and so he comes over and he's like, we only got a, f- a few more units of blood left. And at that point, you don't know if there's two people or 20 people or 200 people that are yet to come in and hit the door in the emergency department. So I know one of my ortho guys is in the OR with a really bad set of injuries, uh, mostly to the lower extremities. And I go in and say, hey, look, how much longer you got? And he's like, ah, a couple hours probably. I'm like, how much blood are you going to lose? And, you know, tell me honestly. And he says, and it's a big number. And I'm like, all right, cut it off. He's like, I can fix it. I'm like, cut it off. We don't have the resources. I can't put all the blood into this one person. Hmm. And then additional number of patients we got was zero. How? Why? I mean, why did they tell you they were you, coming? You, you don't know. That's It's war. You know, you don't know what's going to be coming in. You know once it happens. But if you go, okay, they had a firefight and these six people are injured, these 12 people are injured, maybe there's 12 more that are going to be, you know, the next group that pops up with weapons or that you haven't found yet. So this man lost his leg, mm-hmm. even though it could have been saved because you had to make that snap decision yeah. that other people might need theirs. Yeah. And you go, look, we could save five more people with those units of blood or put them all into this one person. Mm. And that is a completely rational decision with the evidence that you had in front of you, but you then have to walk around knowing you made that decision. Mm -hmm. And it's backwards of what we do here. It's, you know, mass casualty medicine is exactly the reverse. When you do the training for these things, they, they teach you to write on people's foreheads and there's a group called expectant, which means you're going to die. Uh, and with, you know, once you get that on your head, you'll get pain medication and that sort of thing, but you're not getting other resources. Mm-hmm. The ultimate goal of military medicine, and I don't mean this as a negative, but as a simple fact, is to maintain the fighting force. That's why you have a military. And if you say, I can get you five functional people that can get back to pulling a trigger, or you're going to lose all those... It's completely flipped from how we normally do medicine. If you, you know, if you're in London and you go to one of the trauma hospitals there, you have all the resources, and the sickest person gets treated first. The moment the operation finishes and it's done, and they wake up, one of the best things for me is to go to recovery, chat to them, give them a big thumbs up, and say, "Oh yeah, the operation went really well. All things we talked about beforehand, we did. And it's going to be great." Because I know I've been in that situation. I've had operations. You know, I smashed up my arm, had an operation. And that's the thing I remember as being the most important thing. The whole process was a surgeon coming to me and because Bill bit groggy, give me a big thumbs up, literally big thumbs up, and me going, oh, must have gone well. So for me, that's a really important bit, seeing patient officers say, yep, yeah, first meet after the surgery. You know, I find it really difficult. If I operate on somebody and I never see them again, from the military stuff, I've actually recontacted or been in contact with patients I operated on, you know, when I was overseas and now actually see them. And that's quite important because to do that activity, which can be quite, you know, you're doing some big things and some complex operations and not know whether it made a difference or not. It's almost like a, you know, hanging question mark over you for the rest of your life. You just don't know whether what you did was good enough or not. You don't know whether it was beneficial or not. And we always want to, you know, in any of our jobs, you want to know, well, was it good enough? I mean, what are the hardest things you've had to tell somebody who's just recovered from an operation? 
Well, I do a lot of limb reconstruction. That's my one of my main things, limb and hand surgery. And I guess the hardest conversation outside life and death conversations is telling somebody that actually their limb is so badly injured they're going to need, need an amputation. And, and I think there's no easy way of doing that. And for each individual, it's different. And what I try and do to them is almost reverse engineer the conversation and say, look, what do you want to be doing in a year's time? What were you doing before this happened? Do you want to go back to that? When do you want to go back to that? Have you thought about how you're going to get back to running, swimming, riding a bike, or just, you know, going to the shops, looking after your children? And then I try and work it back to, well, okay, here are different potential routes. But in reality, usually most patients particularly where they've had an injury, they've had an initial operation, and normally what we end up doing is, if they need an amputation of the injuries are too bad, you do it to a second or third operation, they've realised what's going on. And often they'll say, yeah, probably need an amputation, don't I? And the most important thing is trying to get into their heads that having an amputation is not the end of their recovery, it's the start. You know, this is basically, you know, the end goal has to be getting back to your life and this is just a different route of getting there than one they may have thought about before but that's often a very challenging difficult delicate conversation there was a kid who had been a gunner in a humvee so there's a little turret on the top and they sort of there's a machine gun on that or you know various kinds of uh, instruments and they so they're sort of standing up through there and he got hit by a rocket propelled grenade, an RPG, and lost both of his arms and had a bunch of other injuries too. And so I was taking care of him in Germany. Um, and he's awake. Otherwise, he didn't have a brain injury or anything. And so we were talking to this kid. You know, he's 19 years old and now has no arms. Um, and he's like, Doc, I'm, you know, I'm engaged. I was supposed to get married when I got back. Where am I going to put the ring? And I just locked up. And, and you know, my brain is going... I, toe i don't you know thank god one of the nurses who is quicker thinking and kinder than me says put it on a chain and keep it close to your heart i'm like wow that's so much better than toe (laughs) (laughs) it's because there's still some art left in medicine as well as the science there's a look that people get when they're about to die, at least from bleeding. And sometimes they'll say it. You know, you'll have somebody that comes in with a wound and will be saying, don't let me die, I'm going to die. And then they do. Um, So after a while, you kind of recognize that. uh, And you see it and you're like, we got to go, we got to go, we got to go, we got to move. This person's going to ground in a couple of minutes. And how have the injuries that have come into the ER changed over the years then? Cars have gotten unbelievably safe. If you're buying a late model car, it's going to have um, you know, automatic braking and 17 different airbags in there and collision warning systems and all these sort of things. And you see that in the frequency of people coming in? Mm-hmm. Yeah, because the, the, the EMS, the pre-hospital guys, will show you these things. And 20 years ago, if they showed you a completely crushed car, you'd look at it and go, that's going to be bad. Now you have a completely crushed car and an ankle fracture. Are there code words that you use around patients so they don't understand what you're saying about them? 
Oh, we do, but they're often a little pejorative. <laughs> Give us an example. Uh, you know, there's there's some um, there's some people who are prone to histrionics. Mm-hmm. You know, when they they'll come in with a list of medications that suggest that, and a bunch of allergies to uh, everything except narcotics for pain control. What you generally say is, I think a lot of this is supratentorial. 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 So there's a, the tentorium in your brain, meaning basically, they're a bit. This, this isn't. Yeah, this is yeah. in their head. This isn't. <laughs> That's good. Supratentorial. Yeah, because that just sounds like a straight out medical term that you'd yeah. need to agree to understand. But that's really useful because if you're looking at someone uh, who's complaining of something severely, but you look at their vital signs and they're perfect, and you looked at their labs and they're okay, and you got a scan and it's okay too, there's a small chance that there's still something wrong with them, but they're probably not the person you need to spend a bunch more resources on. Mm. You need to spend it on the person who was feeling okay and now not feeling so good, and now their temperature's going up and their blood pressure's going down. As you figure out how to triage your resources, having the team know where to put them is useful. And it's not always, you know, it's not always the squeaky wheel that needs it. How many of the cases that you see could have been helped much earlier by earlier intervention and not ended up in, in your, in your bed? That's a great, that's a great question. And I think there's two parts to that. So one is how many might never have had an injury. Um, And then the other is if they had an injury who might not be so sick, a lot of that has to do um, with bleeding. Uh, So, um, one of our big pushes is to push out into the community, um, sort of bleeding control. Uh, and so trying to teach in the same way that you want teachers to know how to do CPR in the schools and you want, uh, you know, the security guards at the stadium to know how to do stuff like that. We also want them to be able to put on a tourniquet and apply direct pressure and do some things that would stop bleeding in the field. Cause particularly if you have an active shooter event, you could have a hundred EMS crews outside and zero inside because there's a guy with a machine gun. Can't go in. And so if you had some of the teachers in there, if you had the clergy or what have you that could had some basic tools and some basic skills, you really could save some lives, particularly in the, in the tragedies of the mass shootings. Have you had to deal with one of those? We actually did. Um, <clears throat> the Tree of Life synagogues in Pittsburgh. So there was a mass shooting there yeah, some months ago. One of my guys uh, had, that was on call that day had texted to say, hey, this, uh, this is happening. And I you know, I'm thinking about where it is. I'm like, okay, we're the furthest away. There would have to be a lot of casualties to overwhelm two big hospitals before it got to us. And we're then, you know, kind of getting updates, um, from the, cause they, as soon as it starts happening, all the hospitals kind of stand up their emergency responses and that sort of thing, not knowing how many people there might be injured. And then they start to get some information about how many are injured. It's, you know, any number is a tragedy. But it's not hundreds and hundreds. And uh, they say, okay, we're going to get one. I'm thinking about it. I'm going, that doesn't make any sense. The other places, ah, they're sending us the shooter. So they deliberately kept him in a different hospital? Yeah. From where it happened, we're the furthest trauma center away. And you try and separate the shooter from the victims. Alleged. You try and separate them because it's going to add to the trauma? No, because you worry that uh, either they're not working alone uh, and someone might try and get them out of the hospital, or that some grieving family member might take it upon themselves to mm. deliver some justice sooner than the court system. 
yeah, I have to block off a whole, like multiple rooms and put them in a corner where there's no stairs and there's a bunch of guards and FBI and all kinds of things that are troublesome for the rest of your flow and your work. Necessary, but very different than a regular day. So at least then you don't have to have the decision about offering him care rather than his victims. No, that would be that would be really horrible. I know what I would do. I would triage the others first, but I wouldn't not give care. If it were such a large scale that you exhausted your blood bank and you exhausted your operating rooms and that sort of thing, that might change an outcome. But we're so good at delivering care en masse that that probably wouldn't change anything. You were here on the day of the Westminster attacks in 2017. Talk me through that. So the background was we had been expecting something to happen since Paris. You know, we had talked about it, we'd rehearsed it, we planned it, we'd scaled for a large event. And actually, the day it happened, I was um, doing medical school exams at Charing Cross, our sister hospital just down the road. And um, the first thing I got was a text from a mate saying, have you seen what's going on? And then, because it appeared on social media before anything else, and then had a quick kind of telephone call with my colleagues over here at St Mary's in the emergency department saying, yeah, actually, we're going to stand up. I said, OK, well, I'm heading over. So there were four of us, one of the emergency medicine consultants and two others um, at Charing Cross. We jumped in a car and drove across to Mary's. And by that time, things were in full swing. What are you thinking when you're in that car? What I try and do is get a mental state where I'm thinking, OK, what kind of casualties are going to be coming in and what kind of decisions am I going to be expected to make? Where, where are we going to go? What kind of operations are we going to need? You know, just try and get into a kind of, you know, a, a, a game set of mind, you know, to think, of, right, OK, we're going from a cold start into this is now, you know, real work. Because we didn't know the details of the casualties, I was thinking, OK, well, look, the, what are going to be the differences between the normal casualties we get on a day-to-day basis and these ones, given that it's a, we were told it was a terrorist event, and I don't know what that is going to mean. It's going to be lots of gunshot injuries. It's going to be, you know, blast injuries. What's it going to be? What kind of things I'm going to have to, you know, handhold the team through because they wouldn't have seen a lot of these injuries before. And then when I arrived, you kind of realise, okay, we've got a really sound team on. Team on. There are lots of people here, as in lots of our members of staff here. And it became almost... Not exactly crowd control, but, you know, managing the process of the patients coming in. And then my role on the day was kind of an overall coordinator of the flow of the patients. So then working out, right, who needs to go to operating theatre when, what's the order. So then having dealt with all of that, then have to, you know, communicate with the people running the hospital about what's going on. Who were the people that were here? What were the injuries? We had the um, perpetrator. And he was declared dead upon arrival. Did you know he was the perpetrator at the time? No. No, but it makes no difference to us. It must make a psychological difference. The thing is, it's, it happens so quickly. You almost don't have time to have an emotional, psychological response. You don't know what's going on. And we're very used, for example, in the military, you know, one of the, one of the absolute principles of the Royal Army Medical Corps is we treat everyone the same, enemy and friend alike. So there's no distinction between what you do for these people. So he comes in and he gets treated the same as any other trauma patient. Then we moved on to the casualties who were coming in, and that was a mixture of people from the bridge who'd been hit by the vehicle. And so the victims, what kind of injuries did they have? So they had the type of things we see routinely in London, you know, broken legs, 
head injuries. Yeah, because actually he used a car, didn't he? He used so a car, yeah. He was effectively pedestrian so, thinking by a car. you know, it's just, the type of stuff we, we do see, which actually made it much easier psychologically for our teams to deal with because the type of things they were seeing were things they see every day. And, you know, we had, I think, um, in total about nine patients come through needed admission. That's not a big number for us. You know, we have busier weekends than that, busier Friday nights than that. So, you know, it's within our um, ability to cope as an organisation. What was very different was clearly there's an emotional overlay of it being a terrorist attack on your own home city. And, and you're not knowing what might happen next. Exactly. Was it going to be like a Paris-style event where there's a rolling yeah. attacks around the city? Um, when it became clear that wasn't the case and we could stand down, that made a big difference to people. But at the same time, you know, even the next day, um, there was a slight sense of unease about the whole thing. And so one of the things, I suppose my role, very much as the kind of the leader of the service, was to say, all right, guys, yesterday was you know, we're a busy day. We all did it really well. We've got great care. Let's just move all the stuff and the noise and emotion around it being a terrorist attack away. And let's just look at the patients and focus what injuries are as we do every day normally with any other patient and do that right. Because there's a real risk in that kind of scenario with the distractions of how it's happened that you don't do your job well because you're distracted by other things. And what I wanted to maintain was the high level of focus on the patients that we normally have to make sure we didn't miss anything, to make sure those patients got the best care that we could give as we try with all of our patients. But, you know, the way they had been injured and the way it had happened, there was a risk. Because I could see it in my team, I could see in their eyes. Everyone was still looking a bit just stunned and startled. You were also the hospital that dealt with many of the victims of Grenfell. Grenfell, in many ways, I, I, I think was probably worse for us because, you know, it was right in our patch you know we, you can see the tower burning from where we were mm. when it actually the night it happened actually i physically wasn't even here i was in um we, i was visiting another hospital in sweden but i got the trauma call pages and the phone calls on my phone and i rang through to my team and my colleagues who are here to say okay so yeah it's fine and we looked at it and we thought my first instinct was oh, i'll be fine they'd, they'd evacuated it will be fine there will be any casualties or there'll be very few casualties because it was so dramatic. Because you kind of assume, you know, a fire like that, they would have evacuated, you know, they have fire fire alarms, fire extinguishers, all those kind of things. Mm. You know, look to that and thought, you know, this is in London. You'd expect a fire like that. We hadn't had an appreciation how quickly it had caught fire. Mm. We, we kind of thought most people would have got out. And so, you know, I, I chatted with the team and, so, and, they, and this is like, you know, even like two or three hours out, we're going, well, no cash is coming out. And even at that stage, we were going, OK, well, that might be fine because everyone's got out. And then we had a few cash come through. But still at that stage, it hadn't really dawned on us that the reason we didn't have any cash is that everyone had died. Because, you know, that was not what we expected at all. And then when, when you find out, when it's literally a building I drive past when I drive into work, I drive to work a couple times a week for the last 10 years and not even noticed it because it's just part of our landscape. And then you realise that's happened on your doorstep. You know, it's it's, it's um, horrifying. And for the people who did come in who were patients, you know, as a result of that fire, uh, you've talked about how every emergency situation, every trauma is something perhaps that might not be predictable. But, I mean, there's something so visceral about you know, having that happen to you in your own home, completely beyond your control, you're at absolutely no fault, and your neighbours around you perishing as well. 
thing of you know when it the first couple of days because I, I flew back straight away um the first couple of days i don't think we had a full appreciation of the true horror of what happened most of our the, the, the cashews came here a lot of them were children and i think children full stop destabilize even the most professional well i wasn't gonna say hardened but you know most professional most experienced trauma team mm. you know i think as you know children just do that to people because mm. of the things you know you, you implied you know the, the fact they are not to blame <coughs> innocent and i think as more and more came out uh, the emotional impact became bigger and bigger we also have a situation where we had people looking for lost relatives and things like that you know coming to the doors of our hospital to the doors of our unit saying look we're looking for this person are you sure we're not one of the people in your hospital and just that kind of sense from you know most of our teams are london based or around london that slight sense that something horrible has happened um, you know someone's tried to mount a terrorist attack on our own city on our parliament just an extra level of emotion about it and, I was, and, and i'm not i wasn't trying to say that's not right you shouldn't have that well, what i was trying to say is we're all feeling that a bit but let's just park it for now when we're doing the clinical stuff and focus on the patients and forget about the other stuff for now and, you know, it's a technique I tend to use in general, actually, about compartmentalising. You know, you focus on one thing, you put other stuff away into a box, and then at some stage you unpack the box and deal with it in a time that's appropriate. When do you unpack your box? Well, I do quite a lot of running, and I quite enjoy, you know, that's my, my, my thinking time. And, you know, that's quite a useful headspace time for me. You know, I'm really fortunate that um, I went through a difficult divorce uh, but now have a really great home life, and that's helped enormously. You know, you'll still you'll be watching television, and some stupid Hallmark commercial comes on, and you kind of get teary from me, like, God, they got me. That's not something that would have happened a decade ago. I talked to a therapist that was really helpful. He's a prior military guy, and he has this analogy of a bathtub. He says, you know, all this stuff adds up. Stuff at home, stuff at work, stuff with your family, stuff with your parents. Everything's filling the tub up. Um, and eventually the tub overflows and it's a lot of work and you have to actively drain the tub. And I think if you're an adult who's, you know, most of us have had difficulty with families or stress with your children or those kind of things, your tub's pretty full most of the time. Mm. Uh, I think it's a rare adult, particularly if you have a high acuity job, uh, that's got an empty tub and has enough room to dump a bunch of Hallmark commercials in there. How do you deal with the simple fact of your job, which is if you have a bad day or if you make a mistake, someone might die? I mean, that doesn't happen in my job. You know, if I do a bad interview with someone, it's a bit boring. I think you have to have this kind of emotional integrity. And some of that comes from ego and hubris. I think if you're not, if you don't really believe you're good, if something bad happens, you can't do it again because you may not have time it may it may go badly in one case and you go okay we finally got that done the next one starts in five minutes you know you got enough time to run to the restroom but you don't have enough time to go talk to a therapist so you've had you've had that situation yeah something's gone catastrophically something, wrong yeah terrible five minutes start again yeah and then the next you know you'll do something you'll be interrupted by a trauma and it's bleeding and horrible and their chest's open and their abdomen's open and they wind up dying and then they go okay we got your gallbladder in the you know room next door what is your technique to just shut that off, the thing that just happened? A little bit of a Harry Potter. You know, it's, it's, it's the, the wand chooses the wizard. 
sort of thing. I, th- I think to some degree you wind up in surgery because your brain's able to do that. It's probably like sports or something like that where, you know, you let a goal get in, you can't break down and cry because, you know, the next shot's going to be coming in a, in a minute. I think there's a subset of people who are good at turning off their brains for a while. Sometimes the problem's turning it back on. There are days when people come into our trauma center with injuries that they don't survive, despite everything we've done. And that's always hard. Every time it happens, that's hard. So it's the ones where actually you're not sure, because I'm guessing the people that you know you can't help, that's then not a surprise. It's the people where you put everything into it and I it think, doesn't work. I think, yeah, I think both are hard. Mm. <laughs> um, I think both are hard because, you know, even if you can reassure yourself or comfort yourself that actually there's nothing you could have done there's always a little thought in the back of your head what if what if mr shahan hetirachi lead trauma surgeon of the imperial college healthcare nhs trust and alan s philp jr md trauma director of the allegheny health network And remember, if you have a suggestion of someone you think I should interview for this show, and you are quite permitted to nominate yourself, do fill out the feedback form on our website, modernmanwith2ends.co.uk. Coming up, Alex Fox answers your sex questions after this. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Time to put your questions of sex to Alex Fox. It is the foxhole. I met... A man with the best name I have ever encountered in my entire existence. Michael Gynon. There's a very, very popular oral contraceptive pill called Microgynon, Ollie. Where did you meet him? Uh, at an indoor cycling rave called, well, it's called Cycle, but it's spelt with a P, so I insist on pronouncing it Percycle, like Poseidon. But it's a spinning class that you do in the dark with flashy lights and very motivational music. <laughs> it sounds like that sentence is the wrong way around. Like, you do it with motivational music and it's in the dark, but it's a spinning class. <laughs> that would be a more accurate description of what you've been doing. Is this your attempt to try and keep fit? You're reasonably fit as it is, I would say. Well, as you know, earlier this year I passed my driving test. Yeah which was a huge personal accomplishment, but it has meant that I've spent a lot of time sitting down. So I decided it was time to move my ass without the assistance of an engine. I'm someone who finds traditional gyms quite uncomfortable and even quite anxiety-inducing. So I've been looking for fun ways to move my body that make me smile and sweat. Here's a question of sex from an anonymous gentleman who says, "Uh, Alex, I've been with my wife for 13 years. Like most couples, we had a very active sex life at the start of our relationship and then things slowed down. I know it's usual for partners to have different sex drives, but it's now so uncommon that we have sex that sometimes we've even gone for over a year 
without it. I think I have a fairly high sex drive, so I regularly end up not being able to sleep from lack of sex. Whenever I try to discuss it, my wife gets very defensive, which then seems to make the issue bigger and more difficult to overcome. So I want to know if there are any ways to reduce your libido, as I don't want to feel like this, and I would rather stifle my sex drive than continue to feel frustrated. Is it even possible, he says, to voluntarily chemically castrate yourself? Wowzers. Okay, this situation sounds like it's reached major fever pitch here. There was, have been uses of chemical castration um, to lower men's testosterone. The most common use of chemical castration, if you want to phrase it that way nowadays, um, is in the treatment of hormone-dependent cancers. That is not a route I would advise this yeah, man to go down. because you could doesn't mean you should. Yes. And in fact, his whole approach seems to be... You know, we have wildly differing sex drives, my wife and I. So my solution is that this is all my problem. It's something they need to talk about, I presume. Hugely. And I'm very intrigued by the situation with the wife. Um, He doesn't say how old they are, but if they've been together 13 years, then there's a chance that his wife may be going through the menopause or has just been through the menopause. That can have huge effects on women's libido and indeed how comfortable, how pleasant sex is for them. So this is definitely something they need to talk about. But let's just zoom out a bit here and talk about differing libidos in relationships in general because it is massively, massively common problem. A huge, huge survey called NatSAL3. Um, to give it its full title, it's the British National Survey of Sexual Attitudes and Lifestyles. Uh, the last one took place uh, between 2010 and 2012. And that actually found that one in four couples in the UK say that they're imbalanced in their hunger for sex. At some point in your relationship, if it's long term, it is almost a dead cert that you and your partner are going to be mismatched either momentarily or on a more longer term basis. So it's far from uncommon Uh, But it can cause really huge emotional distress. If a higher libido individual is kind of pushing for sex, then the partner with the lower drive uh, can feel a bit anxious or even quite hounded and angry. That can cause them to lose their desire further. And then the person with the higher sex drive might stop initiating sex because they're frightened of being rejected or they don't want to nag and they feel guilty or they feel ashamed. Um, And then as a result, intimacy just grinds to a halt. That can create feelings of resentment, feelings of disconnection and conversation often stops that can be the beginning of the end of a relationship Mm. because people just do not know how to constructively address this difference in sexual libido and i imagine that might be because when someone finally bucks up the courage to talk about it it's either at the very moment they've been rejected which is not a good time to talk about it or it's in the language of I feel like you don't want to have sex with me anymore, which is immediately going to put someone on the defensive, isn't it? Yeah, I also think that a lot of people have an outlook that they think sex should just automatically work if a relationship is good. Yeah. And if sex isn't happening or sex isn't smooth, then they presume that it's a problem that cannot be solved and it's a sign that the relationship is over or should be over and that things have somehow died. When we think about other things in our life, if stuff gets tricky, we rarely have that nihilistic attitude towards it. So I think as a, as a society, we really need to stop viewing sex as something that automatically should work 
and start viewing it as something which will likely be likely to need work at least at some point in our relationships if we accept that sex sometimes takes graft and sometimes takes um, conversation and effort and that, that doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad thing then I think it starts to make things a little easier. But when it's a matter of libido, though, when it's actually a chemical thing, you know, it's it's not necessarily that someone has gone off the other partner. At the end of the day, you can't coerce someone to feel horny if they don't. And it, it doesn't mean that the relationship isn't working, but how are you going to end up having sex as much as you want to? Well, one thing that doesn't occur to a lot of people, but which can be really valuable, is to actually consider the reasons why you want to have sex and exactly what it is that you're getting out of that. What do you feel you're missing? Um, There was a paper published in 2007 by the University of Texas at Austin and it actually identified 237 different motivations that people gave for having sex. Everything to from uh, showing my partner that I'm grateful for them being around uh, to it gets rid of a headache to some people have even said, oh, it's a spiritual experience for me. It makes me feel closer to God. Actually examining the reasons why you want to have sex and what you personally get from it can help you identify some places in your life where something other than sex might still fulfil those needs and desires for you. In this case, though, if if this couple are going a whole year without, our writer says sex here, but I don't know whether that includes any sort of form of intimacy or, or non-penetrative exchange. And the fact that it's reached the stage where he's considered chemically cutting off all the electricity to his banjangles, it sounds like they could really do with some couples counselling. It's a really healthy, good thing to do. It shouldn't be pathologised in the way it is. In fact, a friend of mine, Kate Moyle, who's a psychosexual therapist, says she wishes people saw coming to a sex or relationships therapist in the same way that they view going to the dentist. You go before things get painful. You go for checkups. You go to check everything is on the right pathway before um, something has to be yanked out in a, in, a <laughs> in a very uncomfortable manner. If you do want to find a therapist, a good place to start is Relate or also the College of Sexual and Relationship Therapists. And I, I mean, I presume once you've talked it through, once you've had those conversations, if ultimately there is a biological difference between the two of you, is, is the best way to meet in the middle, to literally say, right, it's, it's sex week? It can be for some people. Setting aside predetermined windows to be erotic with one another for a start shows that it's a priority for both of you. You're putting it at the forefront of what you want to do. Um, And it's a damn sight better than just leaving things to wither indefinitely and insidiously on the back burner while life just gets in the way. Plus, knowing when to expect that you're going to be intimate, and notice the wording I'm using here, expecting that you're going to be intimate, not necessarily expecting penetrative sex, which is, you know, that's a lot more of a coercive and possibly dangerous situation. But at least scheduling to have some form of intimacy together means that higher libido partners don't so much fear that their ad hoc come-ons are going to be crushingly rejected or interpreted as hectoring their partner. And it allows the lower libido partner to build anticipation and start to get their head in the right place for bed. If you're someone who has hit a dry patch or been coping with a difference in libido for a while, it can be really useful to scale things right back 
to zero and start from scratch. And one way of doing this is a technique called bossy massage. This involves one partner laying down and the other partner only touches them in exactly the places with the exact amount of pressure and using the exact techniques that they ask for. Now, for the receiving partner, the partner enjoying the massage, hopefully enjoying, it's a good exercise for them to really think about, okay, where do I want to be touched? How do I want to be touched? And how confident do I feel asking for that? It can be a good way of of really reassessing, you know, where am I at with my consent? How confident do I feel asking for what I genuinely want? For the partner giving the massage, it's a great exercise in really listening to your partner's needs, really tuning in to what they want, not what you presume they want, Mm. not what they wanted 13 years ago, what they want now. And it's also useful to pay attention to the places where you might be jumping the gun and filling in the gaps. Are you presuming that you know exactly how hard or soft they want to be touched? Are you um, rushing to touch them before they've fully completed describing to you what it is that they want? Try that exercise. It will feel absolutely bloody stupid. You'll feel like a nincompoop. And an important part of any kind of therapeutic process, whether you're um, doing this off your own back, whether you're seeing a counsellor through Skype or whether you're actually going to see a therapist in person, acknowledge that a lot of therapy will feel excruciatingly contrived to first when you first begin it. You're going to feel like a twat push through that please give it a go lots of people decide that they feel too awkward and that they're not going to persevere with it and they fall at the first hurdle and that can be a real heartbreaker because if you can push through that weirdness then it can be really worth it and actually i think it's an easier sell in a way that we're going to spend an evening massaging each other than any discussion of sex yeah if you can approach the work of improving your relationship and discussing sex not as some kind of onerous chore or terrifyingly awful task, but more of of an opportunity to learn things about each other and hopefully to have some fun, then it's going to make it a lot more easy. And a lot of what does make sex pleasurable is the act of exploration and of playing. If you can frame working on a libido issue that way, then everything can feel more optimistic and you're automatically in a better place to succeed. Okay, well, hopefully that helps and hopefully our anonymous gentleman gets some sleep now. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, let's hope he gets something X-rated and some Zs to boot. Uh, That said, if you are up all night and pondering a sex question of your own, what should you do with it? You want to go over to our website, modernmanwith2ends.co.uk and submit your question to me by clicking feedback. And people can peruse your social media presence as well, Alex. Yep, I'm all over Instagram and Twitter and the rest at A-L-I-X-F-O-X. And with that, we have very nearly reached the end of this month's edition of The Modern Man, but there is just time to appoint a new ambassador. It's Isabel from Crouch End, who says The Modern Man is by far my favourite podcast. Honestly, there is no competition. If only that were true. Please make me ambassador for Crouch End. My neighbourhood is not very well known, even within London, but personally, I think it's great. Everyone's so friendly, it's village-like, and there are great bookshops nearby. House of Books, Waterstones and Oxfam Books, all within a ten-minute walk from my home. 
Uh, well, Isabel, I have successfully triangulated your location and added you to the map, and hereby appoint you an ambassador for Crouch End. Congratulations. Uh, if you'd like to be a ambassador, details are on our website, but until next time, our theme music is by Django Django. I've been Ollie Mann, the producer Matt Hill, and we'll see you again on November the 1st. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip (laughs) off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.